much for being here today for our launch, really kind of kickoff of this um, conversation really about accelerators. Um, and so, you know, you can find information about you all over the internet, um, on YouTube and articles. Um, you're, you know, a pretty uh, big deal in the Boston ecosystem, doing a lot of work there for many, many years. So I think we have a limited amount of time. I want to just jump in with you sure. and yeah. tell your story um, as well. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of informal. So uh, thank you, Greg, for being our kickoff to this uh, new Accelerator Insider series where we learn about accelerators, the ins and outs, and the people who build them and why. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So maybe we can start by, you know, given how you built your first company, Raise Labs, uh, which you sold in 2017, you kind of built it in a very more traditional fashion. Uh, what is your business approach and how does that show up in how you support companies today? Yeah, I mean, when I started my company, I really didn't know what I was doing in terms of business at all. Uh, I went to school for computer science and worked at Microsoft for a couple of years, but I didn't really have um, kind of the startup business education. In fact, I remember I went to a, a, a bank and they were like, you should open a business account. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I move money from my personal account to a business account? Like, I don't need to. I, I just didn't even have the basics. And so... Um, you know, over the years, I, I kind of taught myself. Uh, I bootstrap ended up bootstrapping my business. Uh, I did try to raise venture capital for my business early on, but I really didn't have the language. I didn't have the the network. I, I really didn't understand some of the basic fundamentals. And so it was a hard journey for me when I grew my business. It, it took over 10 years to grow the business. I was uh, luckily very fortunate. We built a business in the mobile technology space and we were able to ride the tide of Steve Jobs holding up the iPhone and asking to the world and telling everyone they needed an app for that. And we we're like, maybe we could build that. And so we ended up building that business. Uh, but my approach is really kind of uh, pro pragmatic and empathetic, like being a founder is incredibly challenging and difficult uh, from having done it myself. Um, there's a thousand and one pressures on you as a founder. And so, uh, you know, when I had a successful exit, I really wanted to give back to the community. I uh, really wanted to help other founders going on that journey um, because I didn't have uh, a ton of help when I was doing it. And so I, I did have some mentorship. I did have advisors over the years. I, I did build a network. Um, but I, th I thought there was a lot more that could be done in the space. Um, and so that's, that's at a high level what I'm doing. Uh, when I was running my company, Raise Labs, for um, a couple of years, we moved into a larger building. And I knew we were starting to work with much larger customers and clients, many Fortune 500 companies. And so I kind of understood the mechanics of working with larger businesses, but I still yearned for that kind of like early stage startup. Uh, a lot of our early stage startups were uh, just getting started and the energy and the vibe, like we, we built uh, the very first, one of the very first apps in the app store was RunKeeper. And we worked with them when they were just like yeah. a, a couple founders uh, with an idea. And that, that notion of like taking something from very small and helping it grow uh, was super exciting. So we ran an early version of the Accelerate program where we uh, worked with uh, about a dozen companies, helping them go through the paces, understand the core business. And it was kind of like an alpha version of what I'm trying to do now, which is really help companies get to the next level. Hmm. I mean, so going from the journey of as a founder, selling your company, working with founders, and also having um, your own fund as well, you know, traditionally, there's like two kind of 
narratives of VC. Like one is for the later stage folks, like be an analyst, that's how you kind of get into VC and you kind of run the numbers and um, kind of doing big deals. Then you have what happened probably, I think in the early 2000s um, with Andreessen, which was like, no, be operator, like be an engineer and, and be an operator. And that should inform kind of your thesis and how you approach companies. So for you, when you think about your fund and kind of who you bring around you from an investor network perspective, where do you think you sit on the spectrum? Are you like all operator, engineers, technical folks? Is it a spread or is it really like, we want some real number crunchers here to assess the value possible opportunity of the companies? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a combination uh, and that's some of the research that I've been doing. Like my, my background is definitely much more of an operator and uh, you know, deep passion for engineering and software, design, user experience. That's kind of where I come from and how I look at products. Uh, but one of the things I've been studying over the last uh, probably five, six months and been reading the research is like, what are the things that actually help founders be more successful? In my research, most early stage investors, and this is both uh, angel investors, this is accelerator programs, this is incubators, uh, they tend to be somewhat subjective in terms of their decision making of uh, who they accept and why. And when I started reading research, there's actually a lot of things that we know uh, can be helpful for founders. But because most investors are subjective, they weren't actually looking at objective numbers to try to help the founders. And so uh, in building my current program, I kind of recognize I've, I've looked at thousands of pitch decks. I've helped a lot of different founders in different ways. And so there is an element of subjectivity and experience that's important. But I'm also trying to put a lens on, OK, how do we collect the information so that over time, our decision making is getting better and better and more analytical. Because when I give uh, founders advice and, or when any mentor advisor gives founder advice, it comes from kind of personal experience. Just again, that's, that's a good place to start from. But we can actually learn what things are most impactful. And so that's really what I'm uh, kind of going on a journey. Like if I want to help a lot of founders, a lot of entrepreneurs build amazing companies, like I don't want to guess that they should do lean canvas or they should do customer discovery or they should focus on usability user experience or, or whatever. Like I, I do think a lot of those things are subjectively very important, but I want to really understand those. So if I say like, Hey, you should focus on customer discovery. I know that early stage customer discovery leads to an increase in X in startups that do Y or whatever it happens to be. Right. And so in terms of, and so I'm kind of digging a little bit, and I want to talk a little bit about the category that you're in as an accelerator, but just talking a little bit about the, the founder, um, you know, a lot of fund managers or just, you know, folks in the space will, you know, and accelerators will say, what do you think is important about a, you know, a startup? And they'll say, oh, team, you know, product, you yep. know, and, 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 and it's like, that's super vague. And like, yeah, of course, that's like standard business building. Um, what, you know, do you think you're specifically looking for and in a subcategory here of like teachability what's like the how are you like what logic mapping are you using when you like talk to a founder to like assess like their their readiness sure uh you know i i do think that there's that kind of like what do we look for oh it's team 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 but when you dig a little bit deeper what does that really mean um there's not a lot of um uh there's not a lot of discussion of what, what that actually is. Uh, and again, this goes back to why I've been doing a lot of this research. I've been um, asking founders uh, that I work with, and I've also actually asked 
a number of successful exited founders who have had seven, eight, nine, and 10 figure exits, the same set of questions, because I'm trying to discern which questions have correlation and which questions have uh, causality. Um, and so this can be any number of things, but um, you know, are you an introvert? Are you creative? Are you a morning person? Uh, what is your relationship to your co-founder? How long have you worked together? You know, one of the really fascinating things about uh, my early research is that when a co-founder has let down their founder in like a profound, like my co-founder let me down mm. and the relationship between the founder co-founder is still strong enough to be resilient to that. That's actually a pretty good predictor that you have a good founder co-founder match because the journey of building a startup is actually so difficult that you're going to have moments where you let each other down. And if you know how to work through those dysfunctional elements of a startup, you're much more likely to succeed. Um, there's kind of three core things that I'm, I'm spending a little more time on in terms of the education portion of my accelerator that my research shows is more predictive of long-term success. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is culture. Again, a lot of companies blow up because there's a cultural mismatch where the, either it's the founder or the co-founder, it could be other elements within that team, uh, ultimately are dysfunctional and they cause infighting within the company that prevents them from making the traction that they need to make, it prevents mm -hmm. them from getting the capital from venture capitalists, it prevents them from getting customers, and ultimately it tends to blow up companies. And so something that many accelerators don't actually spend a lot of time in, how do you build great culture? How do you hire and attract the best talent, especially when you have scarce resources? Uh, I bootstrapped my company and so I was able to attract talent. Um, and I, I wasn't able to offer people like huge six-figure salaries. Uh, I had to sell them on the mission, the vision, the dream, the leadership that I would provide, the types of projects that they would get to work on. And I think that's so important for early startups to attract uh, the best talent. Um, the second is cash flow. And cash flow is really important. Again, it's it's a lot of uh, folks in the VC market will really spend a lot of time on like, let's raise a lot of money. And again, if you raise a lot of money, uh, but you don't know how to operate from a cash flow perspective, like you'll raise a dollar, but you'll only get, you know, 25 cents attraction from it. Mm -hmm. If you have really good cash flow mechanics, you really understand the finances, you can really leverage your existing customers to help you, then, you know, you raise a dollar, you may be able to get a dollar 80 cents attraction and, you know, customer momentum and companies that have really good cash flow operate better they provide founders for less dilution um, a lot of people forget that like companies like google never raised uh, a b a c a d round like they raised a seed and an a and then they ipo'd and they were able to do that because they had really good cash flow mechanics they had obviously good mentors good good technology as well they had good product market fit but you don't necessarily need to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. If you have really good cash flow, you can really operate a hugely successful business. And the third is capital. And again, giving founders who aren't really familiar with uh, the venture space, the macro level education of how to talk about valuation, how to talk about safes and convertible notes, what investors are looking for in a pitch, because oftentimes founders get zero feedback, right? They'll, they'll pitch and they'll be like, thanks, we're gonna pass. <laughs> and so I've been really trying like for, uh, people who submit pitches and, and things for me, I, I really try to give uh, founders as much feedback as I can. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. And I love that you 
broke that down because, you know, there's so much information, you know, well, here's a good question for you with all the new information that's there about startups and, and fundraising and they're using it in, in, in new spaces and places like, oh, they raise money for their nonprofit. And I'm like, maybe they, yeah, they technically raise money from their nonprofit, but is that really what we're, we're trying to say? You know, do you think it's a net positive, net neutral, net negative, like the volume of kind of information and perhaps misinformation around startups and how to build things and that kind of go away from like tried and true? Yeah, I mean, I, I think entrepreneurship at its core is super exciting. Uh, I do think uh, there is a lot of information, so it can be confusing for a founder. Uh, I think uh, for many founders, that is kind of the uh, one of the key um, uh, values of accelerator programs in general, where they can have uh, a guide or a mentor or an investor, someone who has uh, had a little bit of experience take them through that journey and so from that perspective I, th I think it's fantastic right like you, you know like i said i i didn't have uh that type of resource uh you know when i was starting uh my company you know i think yc had moved to california they had spent a couple of years in boston and they moved to the bay and so i was like well i'm not going to the bay uh techstars i think was in its first year in the boston office as well and again i know some of the some of the folks who went through that program i ended up hiring uh hiring some of them, but, you know, it, I didn't have the, those resources when I had incorporated my company. And so I'm, I'm like off scripting and I'm going to come back to your topic. <laughs> yeah. awesome. um, but uh, to your point, so now that accelerators have, there's so many more of them and they're, they're kind of like the new gatekeepers, you know, for, for startups that maybe wasn't there before. Do you feel like the story is still true for the companies that succeed? Like kind of, you know, Obviously, hyper, we've already in a capitalist society, that's fine, but like hyper capitalist, kind of the victor to the victor goes the spoils, and like everyone else is kind of just struggling on the in between. Like, has that really shifted with the volume of accelerators, or do we think we're actually seeing a more distributed access to capital, access to wealth building because of accelerators or because of all these micro funds and studios and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think founders should, should, um, be cautious and they should be cautious of any investor. Like a lot of the times uh, you know, I tell founders, they are looking for capital. And so they will often spray and pray and be like, who can help me? Who has capital? Uh, and they'll identify sources of capital. Um, what founders really need to understand is that the, the equation is flipped the other way, that great founders are in short supply and all of these accelerator programs, investors, VCs would be very lucky to discover you, uh, discover a great founder building a great impactful company. And so you will, as a founder, you should be interviewing the accelerators. You should be interviewing the VCs to see if they will actually add value. Some of them do, some of them don't. Um, and again, it is very variable. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the programs are highly dependent on the individual director of the program. You know, I, I know this from my, my own personal experience. Uh, you know, I ran Techstars Boston for a while uh, before doing this. Uh, I've worked with a number of different managing directors of different accelerator programs, uh, both well-known and small, small unknown 
or less uh, less known, and it is highly dependent on the individual who's managing the program, who is working hand in hand with the founder. And for some founders, they can get incredible value from the network, from the connections, from the advice. And some programs, some managing directors, some individuals, you know, they're not a fit. And again, it's not necessarily even that the program is bad or the person is bad. It's that you need a bi-directional connection between the individual who's offering the help, the advice, the network, and the person who is uh, building his or her company. And it, again, I've seen amazing founders. And I'm like, you are an amazing founder. I'm just, I'm not the person to help get you to the next stage because, you know, whatever. Like, I may not have the manufacturing experience. I may not have the biotech chemical experience. I may not be able to open the doors in particular vertical industries that you're trying to get into. And so finding that bi-directional match is really important. I really appreciate that you say that because I think a lot of founders just feel like, oh, well, I wasn't a fit for whatever reason. But there's so much more that goes into the decision making because it's like, it's a, to point, it's a journey and it's not just the moment. And so you have to think about, can I help this founder through the journey or to their next major milestone? Do I have the capacity, skill, resource, interest, time? Is that my area of expertise? Like all of those pieces. And, Founders don't really know that it's really happening when they don't get accepted into a program or connect with an investor. They just like think it's some other kind of uh, intangible thing. And it's like, actually, I just have no experience in uh, consumer brands and baby products. Like, you know, it's like, I can't, yeah. I can't help you with that. You know, so this is what it is, right? Um, so I want to jump and I want to also just thank you for saying what you said about cash flow because the narrative that's out there most commonly is, you know, growth over revenue and that you're gonna raise capital. And so folks do not build strong financial practices. And it's also a weird, you know, the narrative oftentimes is also, well, you hire someone to do that for you. But I don't know any strong business owner who doesn't know their numbers, like in their mind off the top of their head. And yet we've been telling folks, oh, don't worry about that piece. If you don't like to sell, someone else will sell. If you don't like to do finance, someone else will do finance. And it's like, if you don't want to do social media, someone else will do it. It's like, that's not really true. It's particularly in the early days of a company. So I appreciate you just calling that out because I think that's a really large piece of misinformation that's been going into the ecosystem, which is you don't have to do all those things, just do you know, your area of genius. And it's like, well, yes, but you also have to do all the other pieces so someone else can help you with them. And you have to be enough, know enough to be dangerous, I would think. Yeah, I mean, th there's a probably a, a very small percentage of people uh, who are able to raise significantly more capital than is commiserate to their traction or the level of progress. And not surprisingly, those companies get a lot of PR and press. And so um, B2C companies tend to have more of that mechanic. Uh, and again, I often tell founders that where they're raising capital from a geography perspective does make a huge difference. And so certain businesses uh, will do better on the West Coast, certain businesses will do better on the East Coast. Uh, in general, I actually advise that founders should be looking for diversified capital where they're not getting all of their capital from one side uh, of the country. Uh, and again, I don't want to leave out uh, Austin and Chicago and Miami. I mean, there's a bunch of amazing hubs that have their own niches and special specialties in terms of what they invest in. So thinking thoughtfully about where you're getting ca your capital and what that person brings to the table. Uh, I saw a question come in from Jude uh, on uh, questions to ask accelerators. Uh, and I think it's important to understand uh, the individual and what that individual who you may be working with for some duration of time uh, can really, how he or she can help you 
in the growth of your business. Uh, and again, there's there's kind of two scenarios. If you are being proactive, right? If you are researching accelerators and you're trying to do your homework and you're reaching out to individual folks, hopefully you're not spraying and praying. And instead, you're you're being thoughtful of like, hey, who has built a business similar to mine? Who understands the technology sector similar to the one that I'm in? Uh, and then just have the conversation. Hey, I'm really struggling with X, Y, Z. I think I have a good team that does Y. You know, I'm looking for an accelerator that can help me with X. Uh, you know, how would you do that? Um, if on the flip side, you are being approached uh, by an accelerator or uh, a, a, a VC, an angel, you know, again, be thoughtful about the challenges that you see in the next six to 12 months in your business. And you're really trying to interview that person to be like, do you want that person texting you and emailing you and potentially being on your board or having conversations for the next five to 10 years? Because oftentimes the investor founder accelerator relationship can, can last, especially if the, you both are getting mutual value from that. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for checking the uh, tool to see the chat question. Appreciate it um, as well. So I'd love to just kind of, you know, just broadly. So, you know, why AI? And it's been around for a while. So, you know, why now? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, I've been doing research into what helps founders and what makes investors more successful. And some of the research definitely led to uh, market shifts and being in a fast growing market increases the probability of success for both the founder and the investor, all thing, all other things being equal. And so when I was growing my company, my company was kind of flat for a number of years until the iPhone moment. And again, similar type of technology revolution, like we had had Nokia's, we had had flip phones, we had had, you know, quote unquote, smartphones prior to the iPhone, but the iPhone moment really catalyzed a different way of interacting with this type of device. And it really heralded a new era of mobile applications. I think we're in exactly the same moment for artificial intelligence, even though artificial intelligence has been around since the 1960s, 1970s, you know, ChatGPT, generative AI, LLMs, we've had a moment uh, in the last, you know, six months, a year that just hasn't happened before in AI where it's reached a critical, critical mass, a critical value where all of a sudden it can do not like a little bit better than what was possible before, but significantly better. And I, I think it's very similar to me in terms of looking at prior um, technology revolutions, whether it's web 2.0, you know, bring a bunch of new web applications or the mobile, uh, you know, crypto, this is going to be a big technology shift. And so I think there's a huge opportunity. Um, lastly, because I'm pretty technical, you know, I have a computer science degree. I understand this stuff from a lower level. I think I'm uniquely positioned to kind of match the, hey, it's the right market timing. You know, I understand the accelerator market and space and I've worked with a lot of founders and this technology really has the potential to make a huge difference. So I think it's really in the sweet spot of what I get excited about. Oh, that's all. I mean, well, that's awesome. And also, like I said to you earlier, I was like going through your YouTubes and uh, uh, two years ago, I'm seeing you, you know, in YouTube talking about GPT and kind of going through that. So, you know, it's been here for a while. And for the ones who are closest to it, the technologists, they've been really seeing the evolution, you know, of this technology. Um, so, 
you know, that makes a ton of sense. Are there some really like big bets that you think are worth taking in the AI space? Yeah, I mean, I'm spending a lot of time looking at a wide range of different technologies, but in particular, generative AI, I think is particularly interesting from a technology set. Um, the way I break out the AI landscape is that you have uh, what I'm calling layer one, which is the infrastructure pieces. And so this is going to be your open AI or Anthropic or other things of that nature where hugging face, they're creating the actual AI models that you can sit on top of uh, Facebook, Llama, Alpaca, other things of that nature. On top of that, you have your database layers. And so this is going to be things like Pinecone, uh, Langchain. There's other infrastructure pieces that are going in that database tools abstraction layer. And again, I think that's interesting. Those are very expensive, meaning that those companies will have to raise a lot of money to be competitive. And ultimately, I think there's going to be a strong open source movement in the same way that we saw a strong open source movement with uh, Apple and then Google was able to push Android because it was that open source uh, platform. I think we're gonna see the same thing. And so I think it's gonna be a little bit scary to be at that that layer one level. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm more excited about and spending a lot of time on is layer two, which is the application stack on top of the infrastructure. And there's kind of two different types of applications. One I'm calling a broad application where it's really mass market, anyone can use an application. We're starting to see these pop up on Twitter and product hunt pretty much every day. There's like 50 or 100 of these like, hey, it'll compose your emails, it'll synthesize your Zoom meeting, it'll help you learn you know, a, a new language similar mm -hmm. to Duolingo. I think there's a lot of those right now. And I think they're also a little bit vulnerable because I do think the broad applications will very likely be incorporated by the incumbents. And so, Microsoft is going to release their own thing built into Microsoft Word. Uh, Google is going to build their own email responding thing built into Gmail. Um, Adobe is going to build their own generative AI, AI image thing built into Photoshop. Mm -hmm. um, the more interesting for me opportunities of vertical slices within the layer two. And so going very, very deep in a particular industry. And so mm -hmm. if a founder has experience in, hey, I really understand health tech, I understand construction, I understand legal, I understand procurement, I understand, you know, a different industry. And so when you go deep into a particular industry, you can solve much deeper problems and create more of a customer moat, more of a data moat, more of an algorithm moat, more of a team moat. Uh, and so I looking at a bunch of different stuff, but but those are those are ones that I'm particularly interested in. So can I ask a kind of a nuanced follow-up question here? Yeah, um, so one of the things that we oftentimes hear for early stage folks is like, you know, pick one thing. And then there's this, this, this storytelling gap of like, okay, but the one thing has to become many things. And a lot of folks try to go out with kind of enterprise-ish, small business enterprise tools that kind of cover the whole uh, stack for them, or at least for the services for the for the customer that they're trying to serve. So maybe they're trying to go after hospitals and trying to kind of provide like the financials, the operations, all the different kind of tooling behind it. Yep. So what is what you're articulating kind of similar looking for a company that says, hey, you have an area, to, a place to start within construction, yep. to understand the opportunity space, you can expand your tool the, the suite of services and the suite of tools that you provide. And that's really what you're looking for is, so someone has to kind of come in with a good amount of depth of understanding of the industry on the outset, really. That's right, yeah. You, you need a strong wedge to really cement yourself in a particular market. 
and that wedge has to be strong enough that that it prevent that it, it, it's your barrier for other people to enter the market very quickly. And so, um, you know, in the Web 2.0 space, it was like, uh, you know, Amazon started with their wedge of books and they were able to get people to build a habit of books. And then they were able to expand that from books to CDs to DVDs to like, now they pretty much sell everything. Um, in the mobile generation, we saw Uber building their wedge with taxis, right? Like, hey, we're going to go and create this service that was previously not possible using mobile phones, create an offering in, again, they started in the high end, and then they broadened out to the everybody can use this. And so similarly, I think picking an industry vertical, having a point solution that really has a lot of value and a lot of potential to scale within that vertical using that to get the initial success. And then I think there's a lot of optionality to expand from there. So yeah, I love that because I think there's a little bit of argument about founder industry fit. And uh, I feel like you just made a good case for the 30 and 40 year olds out here who are still chugging along because <laughs> they're building an expertise in a category that they could maybe deploy and use to build something meaningful in this space or others. Because I know that, that a lot of that knowledge base comes from experience in many cases and that and the, and the relationships required right to kind of grow and scale yeah and some of my research shows that that even cross crossing industries can be super powerful right you can take uh, an insight that you've had in automotive and apply it to an industry uh that has never seen that before uh and so in innovations crossing industries is also something that that uh, seems to work particularly well yeah, so it's, a kind of, it's really kind of the idea of like depth of understanding, like whatever, however you kind of yep. make your pie, your categorical pie, it's like the, the depth of understanding needs to be there for the applications. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that depth of either understanding or the depth of your solution, right? It, this is mm -hmm. in a, uh, you basically have to make sure that whatever product solution you're offering isn't um, incrementally better than me going to chat GPT and just typing the same question and getting the result. And a lot of the broad solutions that I'm seeing are like, okay, this is cool, but I'd get 90% of the same result by going to ChatGPT and doing minor prompt engineering. Yeah. Um, and it, again, if that's the answer, the, the really you don't have a moat. You don't, you don't have a, a potential. Whereas if you're really being thoughtful and going much deeper in a particular industry, you're integrating with the tools and systems, you're indexing and doing embeddings on the particular language or documents within that industry, it is harder to replicate by just doing prompt engineering or, or, or trying to trying to do something very similar quickly. Yeah. We could have a whole different conversation on like moat building and like yeah. we just have to even approach that. I think there's so much misinformation about that as well. Um, but love to just know kind of nuts and bolts about the program, you know, terms, program length, you know, things of that nature, just so people can get a sense of what the program offers. Yeah. So uh, again, this is my uh, first, first go around. And so I'm, I'm trying to keep it a little bit looser because I really want to provide uh, bespoke hands-on help with founders. Uh, Intent is a small class, and so looking for six to eight companies total. Rolling it, rolling application, rolling admission. You know, one of the things I've seen in other accelerators is they have like a hard cutoff and a hard application date, and this actually means that they lose some of the best founders, right? Because the application timing doesn't work for them. And so, uh, I'm putting together a class six to eight uh, founders. Expect to work with them as a cohort. Uh, over the course of the summer. Um, three months more engaged, meaning that I have programming in terms of things and topics that I want to cover 
across the three categories of culture, uh, cash flow, and capital. Uh, mm -hmm. But then my expectation is I'll continue to work with those founders for an additional three months post the formal program to make sure that there isn't kind of a sharp cliff that, oh, you're out of the program, good luck. Because oftentimes founders are trying to find, um, whether it's capital or I am trying to find the ideal customer profile or I'm trying to fix my product. And so we want to make sure we're providing a good pathway to them to get to the next level. And is this, um, are you investing in these companies or is it like a pitch at the end? Is it kind of- Yeah, I'm investing 25K in each company. It's 2% uh, equity for participation in the program. And the 25K is done at a $5 million post money valuation. Uh, I'm also working with uh, my own network to, uh, and again, this is more of an option for founders, but a lot of folks have come up to me and said, hey, I might be interested in investing alongside with you. And so uh, I'm asking many of the founders to set aside an additional 75K that could be invested in at similar terms as well. Okay. Okay, very cool. Awesome. I mean, that's a, a kind of interesting I mean, it gets them to where they want to go, but these are pretty early. These are pretty early stage. Or, or do you think the value? Because a lot of times it's like the money for the founder, but really the value here sounds like yeah, maybe it's the money, but it's really about bridging this gap, kind of going from like kind of full market readiness. It sounds like uh, a kind of in market from kind of maybe MVP. Yeah. Yeah, companies tend to be pretty early stage. Uh, again, I'll, I'll call them pre-seed. And so they, they typically raise less than a million dollars. But at the end of the day, my, uh, my investment equity is significantly lower than all the other accelerators. And th that was really my goal is how do you design a program that doesn't prevent great companies that are going faster, but they need a hand. They need a little bit of assistance uh, understanding either the capital markets, the venture markets, uh, the cash flow uh, markets, hiring great people, and really work hand in hand with them to help them get to the next level. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so I know we're a little bit over time here, so we have uh, two questions left, I think here. Um, so I just wanted to bring this up because I thought it was just awesome when I saw it, and I saw it many years ago, actually, when I first uh, learned about you becoming the new MD of Techstars. Um, so after you sold your company, you know, I'm sure you're doing many different things, but you also built this really interesting, like digital e-ink newspaper. I like, this guy over here. Yeah. So, okay, perfect. So I was like, is it, you know, like, why did you build it? Do you still use it? And are you building anything new right now? Yeah, I, I built it for fun. Um, you know, part of the thing, one of the things that I did culturally at my company is I encouraged some amount of play with technology. Uh, you know, the reason I got into computer science and software was because the stuff was so fun. Like you could just have an idea in your head and you type on a keyboard and like stuff happens on the screen. And I thought that was awesome. And so uh, when I ran my company, we had this thing called Hack Day where uh, every every couple of weeks uh, we'd set aside some time that people would play with technology. And so the e-ink uh, board for me was just like, uh, I saw, uh, I think a Hacker News article or something where someone had done something similar. I was like, I wonder if I could do that. And so um, I was like, I have some money, I'll buy, buy an e-ink display and, and start hacking around with it and playing with it. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. And yeah, it still works. And so it updates the newspaper every, Every couple hours, and I'll update. Uh, I have a couple of newspapers cycling from the Boston Globe to SF, and 
the Canadian Gazette and a couple others as well. Um, more recently, I've been, uh, I have it in this back corner right here. I have like uh, another little display. This is uh, ESP32. And so I've never done microcontroller programming before. And so it's a little, little microcontroller board. And I've been having uh, ChatGPT and I have been uh, collaborating on different little uh, animations and visuals and things like that. And so that's been, um, my more recent hacky uh, hardware project as well. So it's been, it's been fun. That's awesome. Um, so kind of final closeout question, I always have to throw in like a random question that just tells me a little bit about you and your personality. So um, if you could hang out with any cartoon character, uh, who would you choose and why? Mm, cartoon character. Mm. Trying to think. Which cartoon character? I, I initially went to more of the like the the Spider-Man cartoons and things of that nature. They just seem like they have a lot of fun. If we go for like Hanna Barbera, it would be kind of um, uh, the Animaniacs, uh, like a, a little bit zany, a little bit funny. Um, so something between there, probably. I just you know I guess that I guess the Animaniacs. I was like that's what he's gonna say. So that's hilarious. Um, but I'm doing that. <laughs> wonderful. Um, so thank you so much for your time. And we went a little bit over today, but this is a wonderful uh, first conversation. And and I've, I've seen chats in the group. I'm gonna send this out, and I'm gonna kind of highlight some of the points that you made that I think were just so insightful and so useful. So thank you for just setting such a amazing and high bar for this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Any, any founders who's interested in the Accelerate program, the website's xlr8.raise.vc. You can check that out. It has some more information. We'd love to hear from you. Perfect. And I'll send that out to everybody as well. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much.